0: I think um, the big deal, you know, is really paying down your student debt, which a lot of physicians can refinance today, whether you go through Earnest or SoFi or Laurel Road or any of those companies, great time to refinance. And if you can get, you know, low enough payments, um, you, you can get yourself in a position where starting a practice, buying into a practice makes a lot more sense. Uh, I think, um, the earlier you get started in a private practice, the better rather than being in a hospital system, that way you can get a sense of how things work. Um, but I think, um, the, the sooner, the better, as far as I'm concerned, although obviously when you have 300 or $400,000 in student debt, that's a big nut Mm -hmm. to overcome. And if you're single Right, You don't have kids. Well, you can take the risk of having a private practice versus someone that has five kids already. You may not be able to take that risk because your family's relying you to put food on the table and you can't live in a one bedroom studio (laughs) Studio apartment, apartment. you know. (laughs)
1: This is the Providers Properties and Performance Podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities in future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Today's episode is with David Denniston with Centurion Financial Strategies, a wealth management firm. David's company advises a lot of physicians, and a lot of them happen to be in the first 20 years of their career. My takeaway from this interview is that real estate, especially healthcare real estate with its long-term leases, many times at least 10 years, if not more, and tenants that are not able to work remotely is an investment to consider to whether short-term economic markets currently battling inflation, rising interest rates, and global politics. I wonder what your takeaway will be. So David, welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance Podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Tricia.
1: So I really enjoyed your story about your professional path of investment management and why you you focus a lot of your efforts on helping physicians build their wealth through Lower taxes and debt, reducing debt, and starting their independent practice. Do you want to share that with the audience?
0: Sure. Um, so I really started focusing on doctors. Um, back, i uh, give you a little bit of, of my career path. I had been working for a gentleman, helped to grow the company from about 30 million to 100 million in assets, and really wanted to. Uh, strike out on my own, so I made an acquisition that brought me all the way from Seattle to Minnesota. So, you know, I moved from I started out in Southern California, grew up there, went to Seattle. You know, got a little colder, a little more rainy. Got to Minnesota, where it's even colder. And um, going
1: in the wrong direction.
0: <laughs> I know, right? Siberia's next or something. And uh, so we. Uh, We ended up taking this huge leap of faith and acquiring clients, of which there were a few physician clients. I didn't have any physician clients before that. And um, fast forward a few years, that was 2008. In 2013, Oh, 2012. I'm sorry. My wife and I had our youngest daughter, and she is our little miracle girl. She was born less than a pound, she was 12.4 ounces. And so uh, during that time, we were in the NICU for about five months as she was getting bigger and getting stronger because she wasn't able to breathe on her own when she came out. Her skin was translucent. I mean, it was, it was a very small chance that she would make it. Thank goodness she did. And so I really got to talk to a lot of the doctors and, and of course the nurses and all the medical staff helping us, which were just amazing in, in the NICU. And so I wanted to be able to give back. And so I started writing a few books and having a podcast and anyone who writes books know you don't do it for the money. You know, uh, it's, it's, uh, un- unless you get some big advance within your self-publishing, like I am, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to happen. So I've been really on the mission since 2012. So we're going on 10 years now. My daughter's birthday, 10 year, 10 year birthday is coming up on in May here shortly, um, to, to really try and serve the physician community and, and, uh, help them out with whether it's debt or taxes or investments or whatever.
1: And what is your daughter's name?
0: Evangeline. Evangeline oh, Marie beautiful. Denniston means yeah. bearer of good news is what her, her, uh, first name stands for.
1: So I met someone this week with a, um, similar story and they named their daughter treasure because oh. of, yeah. So it was nice. Um, so for your day job, you are a chartered financial analyst. Yep. Is that correct? Yes. And the name of your company is Centurion Financial Strategies. That's right. And many of your clients are residents, fellows and attending physicians, um, in the first 20 years of their career. So why do you focus on that market?
0: Well, I think, um, number one, th- those are more, the people more likely to listen to the podcast. So, you know, those are the people more, more likely to, to come. Um, number two, I'm, a at this stage now, so 10 years ago, I was 30. Now I'm about to be 41 here shortly. So a lot of the people were my age too, you know, so um, people going through similar life stages and life cycles and And um, at at the time and still now, and if not more so, you know, student debt is so specific for doctors and what they go through that if you ask a regular financial advisor, they have no clue about IBR or the 10-year PSLF program or all the different programs that that happen for doctors. So I was really able to specialize and help out because I got to know it and Read about it and learn about it and talk to people about it, as well as some of the, the other things that are specific to physicians, obviously, with being residents and, and possibly fellows, and, and then moving into practice where you have this huge jump in income, right? You know, it's very unique to doctors to go from $50,000 a year to two hundred dollars or four hundred dollars or $500,000 a year. So I, I really felt it was a way to connect with my peers. And certainly I have, I have older clients, I have younger clients, but it's been, been a wonderful journey. So I've
1: interviewed other people that have helped physicians with their finances. So I wanted to focus on this episode more on the current market and what physicians should be looking at as these interest rates are anticipated to rise and we're in the middle of having some high inflation. But even with all of that, looking at the current financial environment right now, I mean, interest rates are still historically low. and. How does that and inflation and all this political unrest what are, you, what are you advising your clients to invest in in this uncertain financial climate?
0: Yeah, well, I think it's so hard, Tricia, right? because um, if someone had a bunch of cash today, I to say, Dave, I have a million dollars, what should I do with it? Um, I, I'm someone who very much believes in um, certainly stocks bonds, mutual funds, what I would call financial assets. I kind of call it a, a piles of cash mentality where you, you make make uh, save up a couple million bucks and you draw off a certain percent of that in retirement. But I think it's also important that folks also um, I myself am a land investor. So I buy and sell raw vacant land. So I think it's important also to get streams of income. So as we look at the broader picture, whether someone's investing in medical facilities, you know, through someone like yourself, or they're buying and selling raw land like me, or they're I've invested in online businesses. I own a, a online business called um, City Building Kit. I think there are so many opportunities out there today that people can do. On the financial assets of things, assets of things, the piles of cash mentality, as I like to call it, I think um, Number one on on the bond side of things, in my opinion, you know, I think it's a really wise idea to stay on the short end of the duration curve. What I mean by that are bonds or ETFs that uh, mature within less than three years. Reason being that as interest rates rise, those uh, might go down, but not down as much. For example, you could look at a floating rate bond right now, those are flat you know, you're not losing money, you're not gaining money. And as interest rates rise, you'll actually start making a couple percent. Whereas if you go a long duration bond, like a 20-year maturity treasuries, those people are down like 20% for the year right now. And that's probably going to continue um, in, in the short term. Um, so I'd say being short on, on the bond curve Is a very wise idea right now. Um, Certainly someone might look to gold or precious metals. I wouldn't emphasize that people put a lot of money there because gold over the long-term kind of matches inflation. I personally believe this inflation is transitory, Mm -hmm. but transitory could be a year or two. You know, (laughs) uh, I'm I'm talking like a 10-year, five (laughs) to 10-year picture. Uh, So inflation is with us for the next year or two and perhaps something like gold might be okay, but I wouldn't put it more than 10% in your portfolio. And keep in mind, gold can go down. It's up right now. So, you're buying something that just increased in value. Uh, On the stock side, what's really fascinating is you really have to look at your risk tolerance. How much risk can you tolerate? There are some things that have come down in price a ton. A lot of the stuff that was high flying. We've had this flip-flop in the market. Energy sucked for a really, really long time. I positioned some clients to get invested in that during the pandemic. And now that's risen up a whole bunch. I've just been selling clients out of that. Could it get higher? Absolutely. But um, I think that I'd rather sell high and find something else to buy low. So if your risk tolerance is high enough, you could consider something like tech stocks, for example. You could look at indices like NASDAQ as a common index, for example. You can look at indices that are in the cryptocurrencies or things around cryptocurrencies that are down a lot right now. You could look at biotech, uh, a lot of, of um, high flying stuff that was up 50% is now down 20, 30%. Could it go lower? Absolutely. If interest rates keep on rising, those things could go down more. Um, so the lower they get, the better it gets to be, right? So I always encourage people make a contrarian bet if you have the stomach to tolerate it. But there's never anything wrong with um, stocks. I'm actually going to be putting out um, a separate podcast on my podcast, The Freedom Formula for Physicians, in about a week and a half. We just recorded the audio yesterday where I talked about the difference between corrections and bear markets. When's a good time to invest and, and perhaps increase your risk tolerance to the broader market? So uh, make sure to look out for that. Long story short, you know, we got to about a negative 12% in the S&P 500 uh, just two weeks ago. Now we're back to like negative six. You know, uh, negative know, 12, a good chance to rebalance and get back. You know, if stocks have gone down a lot, get back and, and essentially invest a little bit more. Uh, If things go down negative 20% or more, great time to get more aggressive. So we got halfway there, but didn't (laughs) quite get there. We may not get there. I don't know. But if we do put that cash to work, you know, don't, don't be waiting. Could we go to a negative 30 or negative 40 possibly, but you're talking a once in a decade event rather than a once in a four-year event.
1: And as you're, as these clients that you focus on going back to, you know, physicians, but if once they're coming out of residency and fellowship, do you encourage them to purchase a personal residence?
0: Well, it all depends, right? You know, I think um, so many people, they come out of practice and they think they know where they want to be, <laughs> right? Right. And then they, they're getting in the job, you know, maybe, maybe they got a W-2, they don't own their own practice and they find out they hate it. And they don't like the town. Maybe they moved there because the spouse wanted to be there. And, you know, now they're starting to have kids and, and um, gosh, the school districts aren't so good. And so I've seen a lot of physicians that I've worked with in their late 20s, early 30s, mid 30s that move and they don't stay in the same city they start practicing. So I encourage people wait two years, unless you know that, you know, that, you know, that mm-hmm. this is where you're going to practice. Like for example, I have a physician client right now that just finished her anesthesiology fellowship. She and her husband are from Minnesota here. They have family here. They've had their first kiddo. Um, she, she they know that they know that they know that they want to be here. Yeah. So they bought a house. I've hooked them up with a realtor to buy a house. Um, as as you were referencing earlier, interest rates are still relatively low. Mm-hmm. Uh, ten-year treasuries were at half a percent. Now we're at two and a half percent. Uh, mortgages were at at two percent. Now we're at three and a half percent to four percent. Well, still right. relative to uh, even fifteen years ago, you know, you might have been paying six percent on a mortgage. So that's still stinking good in the long term. Term yeah. could <laughs> real estate go down? Absolutely. You might be buying high. It's a competitive market out there. Um, is this going to be a banking crisis like we had in 2008, 2009? Probably not. Yeah. This seems question. to be a lot more tech centered um, around, around that area. If we get into a banking crisis, then real estate might collapse. Um, certainly, we could have a recession, but we may not. You know, there, there's That's a lot not of unknowns. Gonna,
1: that won't happen. <laughs>
0: We can all hope, right? Yeah. You know, uh, with, with employment being so good right now, you know, and, and the demand out there and all the supply chain issues, there's a lot of need for investment and capital. And um, there's a lot of good reasons to think that this economy could continue chugging along. Obviously, if we get into World War III, that would suck <laughs> horribly. Exactly. And uh, we have to acknowledge it's possible, right? I mean, it's a possibility. We can't ignore it. Um, but I would point out, should we get to that point, a lot of assets will come down in price. Always good to have some cash ready to deploy to buy stuff, whether it's real estate, stocks, bonds, whatever. You know, if we get to a, a wholesale fire sale, this is the time you right. know to, to leverage up and put money to work and buy stuff while it's low.
1: At what point in your career um, do you recommend your some of your physician clients to move into private practice?
0: Gosh, that's, that's a good question, Tricia. I think, um, it really depends on the person. Let's be honest, not everyone's a good fit for private practice. Mm-hmm. I, I would love for everyone to be a business owner, because I think that's, that's where the opportunity is at. Uh, I think um, the big deal you know, is really paying down your student debt which a lot of physicians can refinance today, whether you go through Earnest or SoFi or Laurel Road or any of those companies, great time to refinance. And if you can get you know, low enough payments, um, you, you can get yourself in a position where starting a practice, buying into a practice makes a lot more sense. Uh, I think um, the earlier you get started in a private practice, the better rather than being in a hospital system. That way you can get a sense of how things work. Um, but I think um, the, the sooner, the better, as far as I'm concerned, although obviously when you have three hundred or $400,000 in student debt, that's a big nut mm-hmm.
1: to overcome.
0: And if you're single, right, you don't have kids, well, you can take the risk of having a private practice versus someone that has five kids already, yeah. you may not be able to take that risk because your family's relying you to put food on the table and you can't live in a one bedroom studio, <laughs> studio apartment. apartment. <laughs> you know? So it, it all comes back to the family situation and and what what risk someone's willing to tolerate. Um, but uh, I, I believe in it. I think starting a practice, the, the sooner the better, but not everyone's a good fit for it.
1: Well, if they do move into private practice and they get up and running it, at, at what point would you suggest that they purchase a property versus renting one?
0: I'm going to sound like a broken record. It depends, right? <laughs> I mean... You know, if you're going to purchase a property, where are you coming up with the capital? You're going to want to improve the property, probably. You're probably not just going to keep it as as is. So um, you have to be able. More than likely, you're not going to have the cash to buy the whole thing, right? So, but you're still going to have to have a down payment. You're going to have to have some money for renovations or whatever uh, to get the property the the way it needs to be. Um, you're going to probably Work If you're buying a, a practice building or a surgery center or something like that, the size of it can can really determine what you can and can't do. So um, I think, um, in my opinion, you, you probably need to get your feet wet in practice first. Uh, when you were on on my podcast, which we haven't released it yet, but it's ready to be released in, in early May, um you had talked about, and I thought was really good advice was, you know, first start to rent and get your feet wet with that, get your feet familiar with running a business. And I think, in, in my opinion, after doing that for three to five years, you know, you have a pretty good handle on what you can and can't do. Hopefully the practice is growing and, you know, you have excess capital to put to work and you know what you can afford. At the end of the day, Um, better to pay yourself, right. than pay someone else rent, if at all possible to do.
1: And, you know, when they start thinking about uh, purchasing a property, you know, obviously it depends on the supply and everything like that, but do you help them with, so if they come to somebody like myself and, you know, we have some numbers, do you help them understand how those numbers affect their business or how do you counsel them?
0: The, the way I look at it is, is uh, we're all members of a team, right? You know, the, the, if you look at a company, to me, the client is the, the head of the board of directors and we're, we're essentially on the board with them. And so Myself, someone like you, you know, a CPA. Typically, we all gotta work together to really figure out how does this impact taxes, how does this impact right. cash flow, how does this um, impact the the practice? What can they afford? What can they not afford? So, I think it's really important to have a good, solid team around you, including a financial advisor, including uh, a, a real estate person like yourself, including a CPA, perhaps an attorney. You know, all on there. And people might have different opinions (laughs) and it's up to you to really figure out what sits right with you. I think if you look at that board of directors, particularly when buying a medical practice or a building around a medical practice, you know, I think um, having a trusted other physician mentor who has been through this before is extremely important because they're going to relate to you better than all of us. Let's be honest. Yeah, exactly. You know, as much as we love helping doctors, uh, we are not doctors.
1: Right. So I have a question for you um, on this 1031 exchange. Do you think that um, it's going, the limit is going to get changed? Or do you think that it's going to stay the same?
0: That's a really good question. Um, I think that, um, that the, the government is, is certainly in a lot of debt right now and continuing to be. Inflation in some ways is good for that because now the the debt from the past is now less, (laughs) right? Um, But I think the government is in a position where they have to, in the very near future, figure out what they're going to do about all the entitlement programs. Social security being a big one. Where are they going to get the money to keep it funded? Are they going to increase... The FICA taxes, are they going to eliminate the cap off of it? Are they going to look at other revenue streams like 1031 exchanges or in the annuity world, 1035 exchanges? You know, there's a lot of currently tax-free exchanges, uh, for example, your primary residence. Well, if you live in it two out of the last five years and you're married, up to $500,000 of equity is tax-free. There are all of these tax breaks and and loopholes right now that certainly could be trimmed or eliminated if the uh, government's in a revenue grab. So I think um,
1: anything is pretty much up for grabs.
0: (laughs) I think I think not in the next year not in the next two years, but by 2030, we're going to see some major legislation changes with taxes, whether it's entitlement programs or um, additional changes to the tax code. I predict you know, there's going to be some major changes happening. At the very minimum, we know right now a bunch of the provisions that um, Trump and the, the Republicans passed in 2016 are sunsetting in a couple of years. So uh, automatically, there's going to be some more revenue coming in pretty soon. But uh, there, there's going to have to be more based on our current level of spending and what's happening. So
1: if the bill is going to come due.
0: It will. <laughs> it will. Absolutely. Absolutely. It'll. It'll be interesting to see how it all happens. I, I would imagine, as important as real estate is, there would be an awful lot of pressure to not remove a 1031 exchange, um, or or removing the caps or whatever. But who knows. We'll we'll see what happens. I think to me, that's probably one of the least likely scenarios. I think it's more likely our FICA taxes get raised. They raise the retirement age, some of those things. But I would say um, it's not impossible. You know, if I was to give probabilities... I would give the, the FICA taxes and raising the retirement age, probably, you know, a 60 to 70% probability by 2030. Something like the 1031 exchange must, much, much less probable, you know, they, they could, I, I, for example, I have a subchapter S corporation right now. Mm-hmm. I don't have to pay FICA taxes on the majority of my income, only what I pay myself on a W-2, right? Well, they could change their minds on that. Now I got to pay FICA taxes and all that stuff. So, um, there's, there's lots of things that we're utilizing right now that are awesome. So utilize them while you can, everybody, that's all I have to say about that.
1: Well, great. We're going to move into, um, Q and a section. So get to know you a little bit. Uh, what was your first job?
0: First job. I pulled carts at Costco in Southern California. So I would go inside and, and help people out. And it was during the summer, right after my senior year in high school, and uh, one of my good friends that worked at Costco got me the job. At the time, I was getting paid $10 an hour, which was awesome. You know, nice. 20, uh, what was this, 24 years ago or whatever. And so um, that that was a hard job. Got a great farmer stand,
1: though. <laughs> I was going to say outside, though, for the summer would be nice.
0: 100 something degrees in Southern California isn't so nice on a blacktop.
1: Oh, yeah, right that's true. It does get hot.
0: But I, I had a good farmer stand, so it's all good. <laughs>
1: What would you be doing for a living if you weren't uh, in the wealth management?
0: Well, certainly um, I mentioned earlier, I buy and sell land. So if, if you told me, Dave, you cannot be a financial advisor, you have to not have Centurion financial strategies anymore. You know, certainly land investing would be uh, what I do. I'm also personally really interested in self-storage facilities and in um, farmland and leasing that out. So that'd be the kind of stuff I would explore.
1: And why land? What got you interested in land?
0: Well, um, when I grew up, my parents um, had gotten married, and um, they had they had uh, my mom had a house, and um, when they got together, they bought a new house, and so they got into real estate and rental real estate. So they did it I don't know three or four times. So they weren't like flippers or anything like that, long term holders. And so I had helped them manage one of their properties in Washington when I was up there for college, and we had a tenant that uh, worked for the Navy and this was during the second Persian Gulf War and he went off and uh, trying to get rent and this was the the budding of the internet, right This is like 2000 2001 when when this was was happening and um, it was just a pain to collect rent. And so I got burned out on that because the guy serving our country I was like, oh, this is such a pain. I felt bad. you feel like a jerk for asking someone to pay, but you got a contract, right? And you, right. you got a mortgage and you got to pay the mortgage. So uh, I, was, I was a bad property manager. Um, but in college, I had a finance degree. And I, I certainly started my financial advisory career all the way back in 2002. And um, really have always had a knack for numbers. And uh, you, you got a little bit of, of my career journey to where I started my podcast in 2012. Well, I had a guest come on in 2017, Mark Podolsky. He goes by the land geek. Um, and he started talking about buying and selling land. He started talking about 300 to 600% rates of return from buying and selling land. And I was like, this sounds like BS. I can't believe this stuff, uh, which to be true, you know, honestly, those rates of return are inflated. That's kind of a raw number, but you got to take out some expenses, but it's not unusual for adjusted returns to be like hundred to 300%, which is still really yeah, stinking good.
1: For for no maintenance and
0: for no maintenance. Just
1: paying property taxes. <laughs>
0: and so I uh, I got into it from him being on the podcast and went through his education stuff. I've gone through Land Academy's education stuff, gone through some of Seth Williams on Ari Tipser's educational stuff. So I continue to to improve on this, but basically I love the idea of no tenants, no toilets, no termites, that whole thing. And it was all about numbers and spreadsheets and flipping paper, which as a finance and Excel guy. Right. I loved it, right. And um, uh, certainly I have, uh, now at this point, I have about 350 people paying me monthly for land, where I am the bank. And huh. so not only do I make appreciation on the price, I also make money on the interest. So um, and I have cash flow now to the point that um, assuming nobody defaults, which people do, <laughs> And certainly if this economy gets bad more people will default um, but generally you know i'm probably at about the point where i have about sixty thousand a month in payments coming in wow. so it's grown to be a very substantial business and i've i've branched off in two additional companies with a couple partners and um, uh, continue to grow and expand and try new land. Start out with a lot of cheapo properties where you buy it for $1,000, sell it for $4,000. And now we're getting more into buy for 10, sell for 30, um, those kinds of margins, or buy for 30, sell for 60. And eventually want to get into subdivides and and stuff like that. But you have to have a lot more money for that. What I've loved about it, is I can be very well diversified with a relatively small amount of money. So you take a, a house, like a rental house, for example. Let's say you have to put 10% down. Let's say it's a $300,000 house. You got to have 30. Have to have 30 grand all in one investment, mm-hmm. not including perhaps maintenance and fixing up stuff and whatever. With $30,000 in land, I can buy 10 properties easily, among different parts of the country. Yeah. So. I can be well diversified geographically. You can't do that in other parts of real estate with a relative small amount of money. Now, I can't buy a $3,000 property in San Diego, California, (laughs) right? You know, this is rural vacant land, often in the middle of nowhere, relatively, within three to four hours from a major metropolitan area. So I've really built a big team around that. So the amount of work I have to do now is relatively small. So I have a staff of about 12 people that help me run that business. Whereas my financial planning business, I'm in it. You know, that's the majority of of my day. Um, Some days are more busier than others. Sometimes land takes a little more time. But uh, I see the financial planning. You might ask, why, if you're doing so well at land, do you still do financial planning? And the answer is that land is very economically sensitive. So, uh, all those notes I currently have could vary, you know, it's not unusual in the 2008 uh, timeframe from mentors and people I've talked to then that probably 50 to 70% of the notes will default. So, while $60,000 $60,000 a month or $50,000 a month sounds like a lot of money right now that could easily shrink to $15,000 a month, yeah, which is still very substantial. But, um, and then I have all this land I have to resell, which is kind of a good problem because that makes my ROI that much higher. I feel like I'm rambling on here a little bit.
1: But... <laughs> well, I have another question, but I didn't want to interrupt you.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, feel free. Go right ahead. What are,
1: what are, who are you reading or listening to right now for news information or inspiration?
0: So um, right now I'm reading actually a book on President Obama's presidency, which is fascinating. Uh, What is it called? The Promised Land. Mm -hmm. So I'm reading that right now. I actually consider myself kind of an independent with Republican leanings, but it's just, I really feel it's actually a really good inside look at politics and um, how, how the sausage gets made. I feel he's actually pretty honest in a lot of it, you know, in terms of how, how that, uh, happens. So that's fascinating right now reading through that. So I recommend that it's actually a pretty good read, especially most of us having lived through right. the 2008, 2009 crisis and, um, the, the politics of 2010, 2011 and, and so on. And, um, I'm also, I tend to, to, um, try and get news from a variety of sources. So, um, I'm often on Yahoo or CNBC, uh, read some stuff on Fox Bloomberg. You know, I try and, and get sources that are, um, all over the board just so I can get a variety of opinions, you know, and not be too tied to one thing or another as I kind of weigh out the information and
1: and think about it. And what is one thing you do every day for healthy self-care?
0: Well, I wouldn't say I do it every day, but I do um, exercise uh, every probably four or five days out of the week. So pretty consistent on that. Um, I also um, tend to do a little bit of, of meditation. Um, I'm a Christian, so I tend to listen to some Bible stuff, some, some praise and worship music, things like that. Um, so that those for me are all kind of daily habits of stuff I do.
1: Lovely. And uh, are leaders born or trained? In your opinion,
0: chicken or the egg? Um, I think I think it's it's both, right? I think some people are born into it. Some people have natural abilities. Uh, I would say someone like myself. I'm not like some um, outgoing politician that's going to remember everyone's name and and uh, can can really motivate people in some amazing way. But I think you can work into it as you develop as a person as well, too. So I think um, certain kind of leaders are born, others are not.
1: Well, you're leading a team of 12 people. So you're leading them somewhere.
0: (laughs) Somewhere. Hopefully somewhere. Good.
1: (laughs) Well, dude, thank you for this interview and your time. And it's been great.
0: Well thank you so much. Thank you so much Trisha for having us and people can check uh, check us out all over the place. Yes, if you want to so. if you want to look at um, the uh, the podcast Freedom Formula 4 Physicians where you can check out Trisha in early May and hear our conversation together <laughs> or if you go to daviddenniston.com can find us there. I've had a number of different books so if you google me or amazon me or whatever. Uh, if you ever want to check out our land and what we're doing there, we have a podcast around that, Land Stories. If you look at, look that up or genfamproperties.com, G-E-N-F-A-M-properties.com.
1: Great. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Trisha. I'm
1: grateful for you tuning in to the Providers Properties and Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.